We're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome back for another segment of our journey through Hebrews. Today is going to be in Hebrews chapter 12. And if you have been following us along the entire way, then... You know, welcome back for that. If you are a first-time listener, then you've kind of come in on the tail end of some things that I think are fundamental for us as Christians because Hebrews is such a powerful, meat-filled book that um, I thoroughly enjoy going through and teaching. Um, but, you know, you, you kind of missed a little bit, or a lot of it, if you will, uh, of where we're going to be going in, in today. And so even with the very first word in Hebrews chapter 12, and therefore... The, the premise of Hebrews chapter 11, which piggybacks off of 10, which then piggybacks off of 7, 8, 9, which then piggybacks off of 6, and you kind of get the picture of it has a flow to it that the author is trying to establish for us as the listeners or as the readers. Um, but the premise of chapter 11 is, is the importance of faith and what faith looks like and what it's supposed to produce in our life and why. And this concept of needing to live by faith and not just a belief that Jesus is the Christ or the belief that God is, you know, those are, are more the noun aspects of faith. I'm talking about, and what Hebrews 11, I should say, is talking about is the verb aspect of it, in which there's this action that is applied to faith. And it's walking out our faith. It's living out our faith and the importance of that. And so when he goes on in verse 12 or in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, I believe that that's referencing all those who he just uh, made mention of in chapter 11, the hall of faith, if you will, as it's oftentimes talked about. These Old Testament men and women who did profound things, who didn't even receive the promise of the coming Christ, and yet they still lived in a way that pleased God because they walked out faith and obedience to his word. And so he says, therefore, because these men and women did it, because these people set an example for us of what it looks like to live by faith, even though they didn't have the spirit the way that we have it, even though they didn't have the promises and the better covenant of Christ in this new covenant, even though they don't abide in Christ as we do as Christians. We are surrounded by people who are watching us to say, we ran our race. We, man, Abraham, God called me to, to leave the, the common place, the land that I was comfortable with, the lands that I grew up in. And he told me to go somewhere I didn't even know where I was going. And I said, I did it. I endured 24 years of what ifs and, and, and discouragements and doubts. I endured 24 years before Isaac came. I did it. I ran my race. Moses ran his race. The prophets, they ran their race. They finished they got to the finish line and they are in paradise with God. And they're sitting there and now they're watching us. They're saying, what are you going to do with benefits that we didn't even have? Man, please 
catch me on this of what I'm saying. They're observing us and watching us. We're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And they're looking at us and saying, what are you going to do with advantages that we did not have? And if I'm being honest, I look at the church, at least in America today, and I see us stumbling to the finish line. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also, in the same manner which they did, lay aside every weight and sin. Notice the distinction between the two. It's not just one and the same. A weight and a sin. A weight could be something that's even good. Your love for your spouse, that might be a weight in which you have to lay aside and put Christ first in your life. And let me just tell you, there's a lot of golden calves out there today in which we like to build our little golden calf and then say that we're worshiping God just as they did. Have a big feast and a festival and say, hey, we're worshiping God. We're going to honor Jehovah with this golden calf that we've made of things of this earth that was supposed to be used for God, but is actually used for our own benefit. It's part of what we wrote in chapter 4 of our book, Beloved, in which I talk about that, the golden calf, and how family has become one of those. Family is a great thing, and it's a beautiful thing, and you have not sinned if you've gotten married, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, but it has become an idol today. And many people are unaware of it. Your, your desire to please your spouse, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, that's a worldly desire. And, but God wants you undivided. No matter if you're single or married, He wants you undivided in your devotion to Him. So He says, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. He says, I don't even want you to mosey or walk. I don't want you to shimmy. I don't want you to skip. He says, I want you as an all-out run. And I want you, through the grace that God will afford you, to do it with endurance. Don't stop. Keep running. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 9, 24? So run that you may obtain it. If you're an athlete that you're trying to win the prize in the end, you're going to run with everything you got. You're going to train your life for, in essence, godliness. You're going to train your life to win the race. And he says, I want you to lay aside anything that's going to hinder you. You know, these, these Olympic swimmers, a lot of them have been known to go so far as to shave their bodies and their heads. Every, every little bit of hair on their body, they will shave it because they believe that it reduces the drag and reduces the amount of weight that they have in the pool, which gives them a little bit of an edge. Let me just tell you, today, God isn't expecting and looking at you and saying, you know, it's okay for you to have those weights. It's okay for you to have those sins. It's okay, I love you anyways. That's not what he's saying. He says, look, I've given you a commission to go run this race and I need you to do whatever it takes to make sure that you run well so that when you get to the finish line and you stand before me like some of these Old Testament saints did who didn't have the benefits that we do, I say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You finished the race. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 7-8, through 8, when he says, I finished the race, I kept the, I kept the faith. He says, I fought the fight. Henceforth there is later for me the crown of righteousness which God will award to me, but not only me, but also those, all those who have loved his appearing. Paul says, I, I finished the race. I kept it. I kept the faith. I fought the good fight. And as such, God will award to me that expression that says, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's all the author here is stating. He says, I don't care what it is. Whatever those strings are attached to that hot air balloon that's keeping you from rising as high as what God wants you to do, you've got to cut it. 
If it's in accordance with his word, you got to cut it. And he says, I want you to run this race. You know, I was told one time, a long time ago, that if I keep running at the rate that I'm going to, I'm going to get burned out. I'm going to just tell you, I didn't get burned out because I ran too hard. Because God's grace is always going to get us through when we're willing to run with endurance. I get burned out because of people. I get burned out because people who say they love Jesus didn't really love Jesus in the way they lived. I get burned out because people who say they love truth didn't really want truth when it came down to it. You get burned out because of the backstabbing. You get burned out because of all the stuff that goes. Um, that's what got me to stop running for a time. But it wasn't because I just got tired. It wasn't because I just, you know, it was like, well, I, I got to stop and take a break because this, you know, this, this running business, that's just too much. It's not about pacing yourself. It's about giving all for the glory of God. That's what Jesus did. It's what we need to do. As he goes on, he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, which is essentially this. It's not just, you know, oh, you have a different race than I do. No, we all have the same race. And it's this, looking to Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and the seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's your race. Is the perfect imitation of Jesus Christ. That's your race. You don't have a different race than I do. You have the same race, and that is to be Jesus to a dying world. Now this word, oftentimes people get this confused. They think that our salvation was culminized through Christ. And that's not what this verse is stating. And while there, there is some truth and applicability to that, that's not what this verse is stating. This is not a, a verse that is used to say, Oh, Christ completed my salvation so that I can't add or, or do anything against it. Um, he completed it. He perfected it for me. And He completed that. And so I just come into Him and I get to just abide in Him for all of eternity. That's not what this is stating. It's how I've heard it stated many times. That's not what he's writing. This word that's used for founders, archegos, it means a leader or an example as a pioneer. The word perfecter is teleotes. It means one who raised faith to its perfection and so set the highest example of faith. This is not a salvation passage in which Jesus has perfected your salvation so that when you come into him, there's nothing you can add to it or, or take away from it. It is what it is. That's not what this is stating. This is saying that Jesus gave us the perfect example so that we would look to him and then follow in his footsteps and do everything we can, laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and with endurance we would run the race of looking like Jesus who set the bar of the faith at its highest level and he says, now I want you to run to imitate. This is not a verse about salvation. This is a verse about imitation. Please do not get that confused. Your commission by God is to imitate His Son. And I believe that it's possible. It might not be highly probable. But I do believe that it, is a that it is possible for you to walk as Jesus walked. In fact, to uphold that, 1 John takes it. 1 John 2, 6 says that if anyone says that they abide in him, they ought to walk in the same way which he walked. That word for ought in the ESV is a Greek word, aphilio. It means it is your duty and obligation. 
It is your obligation by God Almighty to say that if you are one to abide in my son, then you better darn well make sure that you're doing everything you can to imitate him. Do not fall victim to the common theology and doctrine today that says that you will never be able to look like Jesus. Because God wouldn't commission you to do something with authority if he didn't empower you to be able to do it through the Spirit. He goes on and he says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And this is, this is the whole part of it for me where I grew weary and faint-hearted is because of the hostility that came against me as a result of running this race. That's the, the drag, if you will, of running and that wind is pushing against you so hard. It wasn't the running, it was the wind. It was the drag. It was the force that was trying to push against you. And that's what got me. And I need to, and you need to, look at him who endured from sinners such hostility to where I haven't even faced that yet. I haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood. It's just been emotional scars and emotional bondage. It's the weights He says, and I did this so that you would not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, against trying to be the, the truth into falsehood, the light into the darkness, in your struggle of trying to penetrate that darkness with the light, in your struggle of living like Christ and trying to be that voice of truth in the midst of people who want to believe the lies. It's not your personal struggle against sin as if you're entangled in sin. That's not the context of the passage. The context is, is that in your struggle against trying to deal with sinners, your struggle of trying to deal with the hostility that comes from sinners who don't like you, who actually hate you, who don't like what you stand for, who don't want to listen to the truth because they love the darkness. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood like Jesus did. The context of the passage goes right into verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against that same thing, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. Have you forgotten the exhortation that dresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline or the word can also mean training of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him for the Lord disciplines or trains the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Meaning that when we come into the family of God, God is going to train us and he is going to allow that drag or that wind to come against us as we are running this race. You know, I was told a, a, an illustration by Eric Liddy a long time ago about how an eagle actually will train, how a, mom, a mother eagle will train its young to learn how to fly. And they, they, they perch their nests up on top of these tall trees, all right? It keeps them away from predators, keeps them away from all this various stuff. <clears throat> so they put them in this high tree. When, they, when the bird gets old enough, it might not know that it's old enough yet. It might think, hey, I kind of like this nest. I kind of like what's going on here. I mean, she feeds me my food. I don't have to go do anything. When the mama eagle knows when that eaglet is ready, it begins to stir up the nest with its claws, making it actually uncomfortable to be in. 
It's not a little, you know, feather bed type thing anymore. It begins to, to pull up those branches and it begins to make it prickly to where the bird just can't get comfortable in there anymore. And then what it does is it kicks it out of its nest. All right, some of these trees might be 100 feet up in the air. I don't know how high up they are, but it kicks it out of its nest. And then it's watching as, it, as it's going down. And if it doesn't begin to actually flap its wings and learn how to fly, the mama eagle runs, like swoops down there, grabs the bird, puts it back up in the nest, and then it does it again. And before all of this, before this kind of climaxes in this death-defying act, and I'm sure that the, you know, the, the bird is completely terrified of what's going on, much like we are when God does the same thing to us. But before that, the mama bird will actually like hover above the eaglets and they will just flap their wings and hover and create this downward thrust that makes the, it makes the bird have to exercise these muscles in its wings that it needs to know how to fly. And once all this has been done, it's still taking care of it, still feeding it, but it's making things uncomfortable and it's developing things in this bird so that when it kicks it out of its nest, it'll actually begin to fly, which was its true intended purpose. And in the same way, we too, God is training us. When we come into the family of God, He doesn't just want to say, Oh, I love you so much, my son. And I just want you to abide with me forever. And I'm just going to feed you and I'm going to take care of you. And your life's going to be nice and cush and comfy. And that's not what he does. He says, you have a bigger purpose. And so I'm going to have to do some things that are going to hurt. It's not going to feel good. But I have to do it to train you. Because I don't just want you to just sit in my house and take all the provision that I give to you without any responsibility of giving back to me for what I've done. I bought you with a price, so glorify God with your body. Right? That's what 1 Corinthians 7 says. The reality is, is that God puts us in situations to train us. And there is a sense that when it's, it's a disciplinary action, that is true just as much as the training aspect. That's why the word can imply both. Listen to what he says. It is for discipline or training that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. He says, I don't want you in my household just eating and drinking and being merry and not having any responsibility towards giving back to what I have called you for. He says, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline or train? If you are left without discipline or training in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. He says, if your life is really easy, if it's a breeze and you say you came to Christ and you're just living your life and you got this nice little self-indulgent life and you got the luxuries and you got all this stuff and everything's good and great for you, then you're an illegitimate son. Did you hear me on that? Jesus says in John 15 that if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But he says, but I called you out of this world and as such, they're going to hate you just as they hated me. Let me just tell you, if, if your life is not difficult, if you, if you do not have pushed back by worldly people, and that even includes people in the church who want to be worldly, if you do not have pushed back by them, if you're not even hated, then I'm going to question whether or not you're actually a child of God. Because 2 Timothy 3.12 says that um, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You can't get around it. 
If you want to abide in Christ and you want to live as he did, then you're going to also suffer the effects of what he suffered. Namely, a cross and hostility from sinners. He says if, in verse 9, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us or trained us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? He says, how much more should you be respectful of your heavenly Father? How much more should you listen to Him? How much more should you fear Him even? Because the word that's used for fear, even in the New Testament, is the word phobos. It's the, it's the Greek word where we get the English word phobia from, and it actually translates to terror or dread. So anyone who's out there saying, no, you don't need to fear God, you just need to respect Him and be in awe of Him. That's not the truth. I mean, I, last time I knew, when I just respected somebody, I didn't tremble. And what does he say in Philippians 2.12? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He says, you need to understand who lives in you. And it should prompt you to understand that there needs to be a fear or a phobos and trembling because of it. Without the fear of the Lord, there is no beginning of wisdom in your life. So therefore, people who are trying to tell you that you don't need to be in dread of who God is, you don't need to be terrified of Him, they don't even have the beginning of wisdom. So I would not take counsel from them. He goes on and he says, For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. So why does God discipline and train us? It's so that we can be like him. Why does God put us in that fire as refined silver? It's so that he can see his reflection when he pulls us out. The reality of God's training and discipline for us is that he's training us to look like him. And and, and this is what is crazy for me is because so many people say that that's impossible. We'll never look like Him. We'll never be like Him. We're just sinners saved by grace. No, that's who you were. You were a sinner saved by grace. But you are not to remain as that. God brings trials into our life to refine us. Listen to what He says in James chapter 1, 2-4. through He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, the proving of your faith, not that you had a genuine faith as much as the proving or the refining of your faith, the purifying of your faith, that which makes it stronger. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. You know what those three things just described of perfection, completion, and lacking in nothing? They just described God. He says, and I want you to imitate him. Train yourself for godliness, which means to be God-like. So if you're out there and you think that it's an impossibility, you will never be like Jesus. You'll never be able to be an imitator of Christ or an imitator of God. You'll never be able to do that. You're just relegated to a lot of struggling in your sin and you're just going to be a victim to your flesh and that's just how it's always going to be. Let me just tell you, you're deceived. You don't know the true gospel and you don't know the power of grace of what it can accomplish in somebody when they truly submit to it in humility and faith. Because all things are possible for him who believes. And God's grace is given to those who are humble. 
So the reality is, is that God wants to produce this in you. And the only way that that's going to happen is when you choose to let steadfastness through the midst of the trials have their perfect work in you. And that's all he's talking about here. In verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for good that we may share in his holiness. But you must endure or have steadfastness through that training in order to look like God in the end. Because in order for Christ to resurrect, he had to go through the cross. And the same way for you to find the life of God on the other end, it's going to come on the other end of the cross. You must bear that cross in the same way that Jesus did. In verse 11, for the moment, all discipline or training seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Are you catching what what the author is, is dishing out right here? He's saying, guys, if you want to to be as Christ is, then you're going to have to learn your obedience through suffering just as he did, as Hebrews 5 talks about. Even in Ephesians 5, 1, he says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Your commission is to look like him, but you can't get to that until you learn to suffer and endure through it well. And just like that eagle, there might be times where you get you flop out of that nest she has to come down and catch you and bring you back. And then you do it again. Catches you and brings you back. God's not going to stop trying to make you look like Him. He's going to keep bringing trials. He's going to keep bringing those things in His life. Because He understands that He's training you for your good. So that you might share in His holiness. And if you are willing to be trained by it. Then you will. Luke 6.40 says that no disciple is above his teacher, but each, each disciple, when he is fully trained, can be like his teacher. That training comes through difficulties and hardships and trials. But its end result is the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it to look like their teacher. And he goes on, he says, therefore... And this is probably for any of you who are in the same boat as me, who are still struggling to get their feet underneath them, who are still struggling to get that endurance back, who are still struggling to, you know, just like a runner. When I was, you know, three years ago, I was 250 pounds and I had gained a lot of weight, got a lot of health issues. And and I just realized, you know, I'm going to have to do something about this. And so I've lost about 50 pounds and I'm hovering right at about 200 right now. And, you know, I, I... I tried to go out and run and my endurance is just not where it was when I was 150 pounds in high school running, you know, four miles a day. My endurance is not to that point. And in the same way, my spiritual race, my endurance is not where it was 10 years ago. And yours might not be either. There might have been things that, that derailed you from the race. There might have been things that, while they might not have disqualified you, as Paul talks about, as the end thing is about apostasy of being unfit for the race. Um... You might have stumbled. You might have slowed down. You might have even stopped and got your hands on your knees and you're sucking wind. I don't know where you're at in your spiritual journey, but this is God's message to you. That I'm training you. I'm kicking you out of that nest. But I'm picking you back up and I'm putting you back in that nest to kick you out again. Because I want you to learn how to fly. He says, so therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. You notice that God's not just going to do it for you. You have a part to play in this. You have a responsibility in all of this to make straight paths for your feet. You need to start doing what you need to be doing. He says, and if there's things that are broken, if there's things that are hurt, 
Man, start getting them to God to let them heal it. That's going to take time. That's going to take confession. That's going to take vulnerability. And it's not easy. So you want to get back up and you want to start running, you want to start flying like God wants you to, then you're going to have to do what it takes. Because God will not do it for you. Don't think that He's just... Don't, don't, don't just sit there and wait for Him to heal you before you're going to start acting like you're saved. You need to get up. You need to start running. You need to start doing what you're supposed to. You need to start being vulnerable and start confessing so that you can get some of these weights and sins off your back. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame, what is improper, what is, what is broken would not be put out of joint to get worse. Remember what Jesus tells the guy when he says that he healed him? He says, now go and sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Let me just tell you, if you're not going to do it, it's going to get worse in your life. He says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He says, if you're not striving to be perfect as he is perfect, that complete perfection of being set apart from the world as he is, unstained from the world as he says in pure and undefiled religion, if you're not striving for that, then you'll never see the Lord manifest in your life. You'll never see the grace of God manifest in your life. As First Peter one thirteen says, set your hope fully on the grace of God. So, um, well, I need to go read it actually again. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, if you're not doing those things, then you will not see Christ revealed in your life. This requires responsibility. This requires action from you. Just as faith requires action, this does too. Healing requires action in the same way. God wants you to run. But what are you doing about it to get there? Now he gets pretty serious and he breaks it down here. He says in verse 15, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now this is an interesting concept because if you're a Calvinist and you're listening to this and you believe that grace is an unconditional, unmerited favor and that's it, that we can do nothing to earn it, we can do nothing to deserve it. And while there's a small degree of truth to that, that I did not do anything to deserve God offering grace to me, I most certainly have to do something to make sure that it is applied to my account. If grace was unconditionally applied at the discretion of God alone and no one else, then how in the world could I have any opportunity or even obligation to have anyone fail to obtain it on my watch? Listen to what he says. I'm going to read it again. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So again, if you're a Calvinist and you believe that all are just predestined and everything is just about the elect and man has no free choice and there's no free will of man to do anything, then this is in violation of your belief. Thus, you're wrong. Because this says that we have a responsibility to make sure that people attain the grace of God. It says what it says. He goes on, he says that no root of bitterness springs up and by it many become defiled. Notice that a root of bitterness, oftentimes with the hinging of unforgiveness as its root, um, it doesn't defile just you. It defiles everybody. It says by it many become defiled. That one root can destroy everything in your life. And the grace of God is the only thing that can overcome it. But you must humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. First Peter 5, 5-6. through six. 
you must humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. If you want to receive grace, that means you've got to set straight paths for your feet. That means you've got to stand up, start confessing. You've got to start being vulnerable to your sins. And you've got to start saying, you know what? I've had bitterness in my life. I've had unforgiveness in my life. And I've got to rise above that. And the only way I can do that is through the grace of God. And the only way that you get grace of God applied to your account is when you begin doing what he's asked you to do. And then he goes on, he says, And make sure that no one among you is sexually immoral like Esau. Or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, and when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This was the firstborn. This was the one who had the blessing. This was the one who had the promise. This is the one who sold it all because he was in love with a single meal. And in relation, a single meal is a lot like the things of this world compared to eternity. And he says, I don't want anyone among you to be sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Because even after he sought repentance and even with tears, he was denied. Now this goes into our podcast in in Hebrews chapter 6 that I encourage you to go look at because he says the same exact thing. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance once they have apostatized from the faith. And I believe that this is a direct relation to that exact same notion. And he says, and it all starts with the small seed of bitterness. Those weights and those sins, they can be small ones at first. But they will always grow, just like ivy on a wall. It will never go backwards. It will always grow forwards until it's dealt with. And this is the warning that's here. God is disciplining you. He's training you. But you have to do something with it. If you're not going to take the responsibility to start doing what you need to, it will only get worse in your life. You're either growing to look more like Christ or you're growing to look more like the culture. You can't stay in the middle. And the author is urging the readers, you and I, as well as the Hebrews here that he's writing to, to make sure that they do everything they need to, to run the race with endurance to look like Jesus and not the culture. He goes on in verse 18, giving us us an illustration and understanding of what we've come to, that we cannot take it lightly. Do not think that God is just this God of love and that Christ is just all kind and merciful. He is a lamb, but one day he's going to come with the wrath of the lamb. And he's going to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. As 2 Thessalonians 1, 3-8 and 9 say. Do not think that God is just love. That he's just this kind, merciful, heavenly father. Listen to what he says. For you have not come to what may be touched. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. He's referencing Mount Sinai. When the law was given on Mount Sinai, um, the people were inhabited around it and camped around it. And Moses went up on it and got the Ten Commandments and the law that was given to him to give to the people. God was very specific and he said, if even a beast touches this mountain, it will die. You've got to understand who you're dealing with. A similar message was found in Hebrews 10, 26-31 when he says, If somebody set aside the law of Moses, they died without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment? The same God 
If you're going to abuse the new covenant, it's going to be a worse punishment for you than if you abuse the old. And dying by stone, being stoned to death, was a pretty bad punishment. He says, realize what you've come to. He says, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mound, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The meekest man that ever lived up until Christ. The one that God spoke to face to face as El Shaddai trembled with fear at the sight. He says, you have come to Mount Zion. It's not even just this physical mountain. You've come to a heavenly dwelling. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn, meaning Christ, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He says, you've come to something far superior than that. You've come to a new covenant, to a heavenly Jerusalem. It's no longer about Israel. Man, I get so... Oh, it irritates me so much when people talk about how Israel is still God's people. Can I just tell you, God has forsaken them. Luke 13, 34 through 35 says it. Romans 11 talks about it in 22 where he says that they were cut off. They were a copto. They were cut off as a branch from a tree. They are lying on the ground and their end is to be gathered up and burned. Unless, unless they repent and come into salvation in this new covenant through the blood of Christ. and Not through the law of Moses. The Jews are no longer God's people. They still have a purpose and a role to play, just as the Gentiles do in all things, even unbelievers, just like Pharaoh had a role to play. The Jews have a role to play, but they are not God's people. Because the new covenant dwells in spiritual things. And I would encourage you to go go listen to our Hebrews 6, 7, 8, and 9 studies on this as I talk about this very thing. He goes on, he says... See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. I want you to notice something on this one, the same way as what he says in the beginning of Hebrews chapter 2. He says this, Therefore we, the author includes himself as a spirit-filled believer, must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? In the same way, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. I know that I am not refusing him, but he goes on and he includes himself in the next statement. For if they, the Old Testament saints, did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. He says if the people of God rejected the rule of God over their lives and they didn't escape in a physical way, Why would you think that we would escape in a spiritual one that has better promises with more renowned glory than the glory of the physical? He says in 26, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. 
He says, then his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And listen to what he's talking about here. He says, look, there was a prophecy that was written that talked about that one day I'm going to come and I'm going to shake not just the earth, but the heavens. And when I do, the things of old will be removed. Now, what's he, what's he corresponding here? He's talk, talking about Old Covenant, New Covenant. He's talking about the law that was given to Mount Sinai and the law that was given to us through Christ. He's talking about the embodiment of salvation of what it was in the old as opposed to the embodiment of salvation of what it was in the new. And he says, once the new comes, that old has now been removed. This is what Ephesians 2 is talking about, that the blood of, that we have peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ, and He has now made this new covenant, and as such, He has now abolished the law of commandments that were expressed in ordinances. And He says, therefore, in 28, no longer that we're waiting for this kingdom, He says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, because it's enacted on better promises with a better foundation. He says, it's not something you're still waiting for. It's something you have now received. And you need to be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. And listen very carefully because God has not changed in who he is and in his need to be feared. He says, offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. What does he mean by this? It's a very simple concept that he's stating here. He says, look, God is still the same. And he still expects from his people obedience, respect, reverence, awe. And even in the sense that he says here, fear. He says, you need to understand who I am. And you need to understand that although you have not come to Mount Sinai, you've come to something greater, but it's still the same God. And you need to fear Him. You need to make sure that you're doing what it takes to run this race in the commission that He's given to us to look like Jesus. And you need to make sure that you're doing it well because He is a consuming fire. And this is where James 4 comes in. In which he's talking to believers, people who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. He says, look, if anyone wishes to be a friend of the world, they make himself an enemy of God. While you are an unbeliever, you are already an enemy of God. You can't make yourself an enemy of God as an unbeliever. You're already hostile to God. That's what Ephesians tells us. The only one who can make themselves an enemy of God is the person who's been a friend of God. And that is only possible through Jesus Christ. But then he goes on and he says this. In James chapter 4, he says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. He says he's caused that spirit to dwell in you and he is jealous over that spirit. So if you're going to abuse that, If you're going to treat it nonchalantly, if you're going to just kind of take advantage of that, you're going to live for yourself, you're going to do your thing, you're going to live for this world and be a friend of this world, then God says, you, you're warned right now 
I am a consuming fire. And I yearn jealously over the spirit that I have made to dwell in you. Now maybe that's you. And maybe that next verse is for you when he says, But I give more grace. Therefore it says, Humble yourselves. He opposes the, opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. His whole point is, is that God is willing to extend grace to you to overcome any wretchedness that you've put in your life because you've wanted to be a friend of the world. And he says, but you're going to have to do something about it and take responsibility for your actions. You're going to have to purify your heart, you double-minded. You're going to have to cleanse your hands, you sinners. You're going to have to make things right and make straight paths for your feet so that it may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. You're going to have to get back on the boat. But before you can do that and start running this race the way that you need to in the image of Jesus, you got some things you got to take care of. Do not lose sight of who God is. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has not changed. There's no variation, a shadow due to change in his character. You've got to understand, the same God who incited fear and trembling in the people of Mount Sinai is the same God who should incite fear and trembling in us. We must not put Christ to the test. So wherever you're at in your journey, wherever you're at in your race, you might be running well right now. Keep it up. Keep looking to Jesus. Don't look at the waves. Don't let those things distract you from what he's promised you. He has given you the authority to be able to walk in this life and to walk on water, to do the impossible. And I would tell you, I, I think that it's a lot harder for us to, to live a perfect life like Christ than it is for, to walk on water. And yet Peter walked on water. Actually, I would say the opposite is true. I would say it's harder to walk on water than it is to live a perfect life in Jesus Christ through the spirit of God that he's given to us and the grace that he's given to us. And yet Peter walked on water. Notice it wasn't only Jesus who walked on water. Peter did too. So you might be running this race and you, you might be sprinting right now and praise God that you are. Keep it up. Keep going. Do not relinquish any bit of strength to conserve it for yourself. Give it all to the glory of God and God will, will give you more. Or maybe you're kind of like me where you were running well. But there was some hindering that happened, some weights, some sins, whatever it might be that kind of created a drag in you or against you, I should say. And this kind of stopped, caused you to stop. And you might be trying to build back up your endurance. You might be starting to try to do it again. I'm just going to tell you, take care of what you need to. Sit straight past your feet. Do what you're supposed to. And God will bring about the ultimate healing and produce that endurance in you. And maybe you're just one who... Maybe you just didn't know you were supposed to run, or maybe you're just you're you're gasped and you're just you're stopped. You got your hands on your knees and you're not doing anything. Let me just tell you, take this as a warning. Staying in that position will not end well for you. It doesn't matter what your motivation is, it doesn't matter what your reasoning is for stopping, it will not end well for you. Get back up and start running. Because our God is a consuming fire. And that goes for one way or the other. Meaning, if you're doing what you're supposed to, he will, he will fill you with more fire in your body, in your heart, and in your mind than you ever thought possible. And that zeal and that passion will be an encompassing fire in your life. But if you're filling up your life with worldliness and sin and things that go against who God wants you to be, you better know that he is a fire that will engulf you. 
And so, wherever you find yourself, run this race with endurance. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And um, yeah, that's about the best advice that I can give to you. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who set the bar of the faith at its highest level. And he says, now I want you to go and imitate that. Y'all be blessed.